The New Testament is abundantly clear on two truths as it pertains to this morning's subject. Number one, you will be unjustly wronged in this life. You can just count on it. It will happen. You will be unjustly wronged. Number two, you must not return evil for evil. The evil that you will suffer may come in the form of a false accusation, a betrayed confidence, a broken promise, or any other number of wrongs. The injustice may be relatively minor. Someone spreads a malicious rumor about you around the office place, or someone breaks into your car and steals your purse. Hey, these, these injuries produce frustration and they cause some damage, but they don't alter the course of your life. Other injustices are major, life-altering events. The betrayal of a spouse that leads to the breakdown of a marriage, sexual abuse that leaves deep emotional wounds, a drunk driver that kills your child. How do you respond in these situations? How do you respond in the face of injustices, both minor and major? What does Christ call us to do in the face of such evils? Well, again, the New Testament is loud and clear. You must not seek vengeance. Observe the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Or Peter in his first epistle. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Pause. Just just let what Peter said sink in for a second. You have been called called to suffer unjustly. Just mark it down. To this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Or Paul, in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
These are the commands of Scripture, and they are unambiguous. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have been called to follow in the steps of Christ, who did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. But how do you do this? How do you overcome evil when a torrent of negative emotions threaten to overwhelm your soul? How do you pray for your enemy when the very thought of him makes you sick to your stomach? How do you resist the urge to avenge yourself when everything within you is crying out in righteous rage? Psalm 5 provides an answer. Not an easy answer, mind you, but a way forward out of the bitterness and the anger that will absolutely consume you if you do not deal with it. The superscription affixed to Psalm 5 provides us with no information regarding the historical background of this psalm. It simply says, to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. But as we read, it becomes clear that David is in deep anguish of soul and that this anguish is caused by enemies who are actively seeking his downfall. The best guess, and it's only a guess, is that the context of Psalm 5 is the same as the context of Psalms 3 and 4. That is, Absalom's rebellion. The heartaches and the injustices that were involved in this episode of David's life are multitude. Not only has his son betrayed him, but so has his most trusted counselor, a man by the name of Ahithophel. Absalom has stolen not only the hearts of David's people, he has stolen the loyalty of David's armies. And then, on his flight out of Jerusalem, Shimei of the house of Saul cursed him continuously and threw stones at him. Question becomes, how is David going to respond in the face of these injustices? Well, Psalm 5 records the answer. The psalm is comprised of five stanzas, each one reflecting a movement of David's soul as he works through the emotions of of these injustices and moves from anger and anguish all the way to confidence and joy. And my prayer this morning is that God would move many of us along that same path. My prayer is that God would move you from anger and anguish that eats you up to confidence and joy and freedom through faith in the God who promises that he will judge justly. In the first stanza, David focuses upon the ear of God and he pours out his soul before the Lord. Verses 1 to 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. 
O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Uh, There's a reason why all of the psalms of lament begin the same way. That is, with an invocation in which the psalmist cries out to the Lord out of his distress. You see, the natural inclination of one who has been harmed, one who has suffered an injustice, is to turn inward, to stew, to seethe, to nurse bitter and malicious thoughts. But that reaction is antithetical to holiness. When you are wronged, do not turn inward. Turn upward to God and express the pain that you are feeling to Him. Not only will he hear, as we will notice momentarily, but this will keep you from just soaking in the cesspool of bitterness. You have an advocate in heaven. You have the ear of the righteous judge of the universe. So go to him. How do you go to him? How shall you approach him? Well, let me give you three ways to approach the living God with your pain and with the injustice that you've suffered. Number one, go to him emotionally. No matter what those emotions may be, do not try to hide them, do not try to sanitize them, do not try to sanctify them. Take them as they are and bring them to the Father. Now, I get this from the second line of this psalm where David says, consider my, you see the word there, groaning. Consider my groaning. It's a nonverbal expression of need. So the first line, give ear to my words, O Lord, combines with the second line, consider my groaning, to represent both the verbal prayers and the nonverbal groans. And it paints the picture of a man that is enduring deep emotional distress. What do you do when you are too hurt, too angry, too frustrated, too injured to form your emotions into words, and to offer them in a prayer to God. David just groaned. And so should you. Just pour out your heart before the Lord. Don't hide your emotions. As I said, don't sanitize them. Just pour them forth, and he will hear. Romans 8.26, Paul says, even when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our weaknesses with groans too deep for words. So approach the Lord emotionally. Secondly, approach the Lord covenantally with all the boldness that that relationship engenders. I get this from the possessive pronouns. My king and my God. See, David knew that in spite of all of his sin, he had a right to approach the throne of God. Not a right rooted in his own merit and deservedness, but a right rooted in the grace given to him in God. We'll talk more about the foundation of this approach later, but 
all the scholars agree that my king and my God is covenantal language. So what does this knowledge do for us in the midst of injustice? It reminds us that we are not alone. We're not left to sort things out on our own. Did you ever have that experience as a child of having a problem that looked to you like a, like a tangled, knotted ball of yarn and, and you couldn't see your way through, you couldn't, you couldn't see how you were ever going to untangle this mess, but somehow you just knew that if you laid this problem before your father, he would be able to untangle it for you? What did that display? That displayed your faith in the wisdom of your father to handle your need. This is exactly what David is doing in verse 2. Your heavenly Father, your King and your God, is wise and powerful to resolve your every problem and to set right your every injustice. And on the basis of that covenantal relationship, you have every right to go to Him. He is your Father. In fact, this is exactly what he wants you to do. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. William Plumer wrote, What would suffering believers do without access to the throne of grace? But with a mercy seat always accessible, What can they lack? Go to the throne of grace. Your Father has bid you to come. You must approach the Lord emotionally. You must approach Him covenantally. Finally, you must approach Him expectantly. Which I think is the most difficult step of all because it's an act of sheer faith. Okay, It's directing your emotions toward what is promised rather than what is seen. David writes in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That's a declaration of faith. He doesn't know experientially yet. He doesn't know that the Lord has heard his voice. He's trusting that the Lord has heard his voice. He says, so in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I like this, and watch. For what? Watch for what? He says, I'm going to bed tonight knowing that you've heard my voice. I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to prepare a sacrifice for you, and I'm going to watch what you do. I'm going to watch the way you answer my cry. Now, That answer may not come immediately, and it may not come in the manner in which you expect, but it will come. But you must ask in faith, James 1.6. You must train your heart to believe on the basis not of what you can see, but on the basis of what is written, that God does hear the cries of his children, that God does answer their prayers, that God does care, and that God will act. It would do your heart good 
to end your prayers with the confident declaration that we sang this morning from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. What's, what's the psalmist doing? He's watching. I lift up my eyes to the hills in expectancy of your arrival. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will never slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Train yourself to end your prayers that way. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Memorize that psalm, or at least its opening lines, and repeat it again and again in prayer until you believe it. David then moves in verses 1 through 3, and focusing upon the ear of God that hears his cry, to verses 4 to 6, and to the justice of God, which hates all wickedness and judges all evil. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. One of the most powerful emotions which are known to humanity is that which rises from an injustice for which there is no recourse. Someone has done wrong to you and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a powerful emotion. It doesn't sit well with us. It eats us up. It makes us feel that somehow the entire cosmos has come unhinged. Why do we feel that way? We feel that way because we were made in the image of the God who loves truth and justice and who hates falsehood and injustice. Every man feels that way. Even the liar who thinks nothing of spreading falsehood himself, he feels wronged when someone lies to him. Even the thief who's conscience is seared when it comes to the taking of someone else's possessions, denounces as evil the taking of what belongs to him. Injustice done to us presses upon our very soul such that we, we almost can't stand it. When an abuser walks free, when an adulterous ex-spouse finds happiness in a new marriage, when a contractor or a businessman rips us off and there's no way to prove criminality and a civil suit is just too expensive. In these kinds of situations, it's supremely helpful to remember that no injustice, not 
one will survive the just judgment of God who is infinitely more angry, infinitely more wrathful against wickedness, and verse 5 says, against the wicked themselves, than we ever dreamt of being. God is far more unsettled by injustice than we are. And be assured, the cosmos is not going to unravel. God will see justice done. William Plumer, the 19th century Presbyterian theologian, he offered this meditation on the holy and just character of God. It's kind of long, but I hope you'll forgive me. It's really good. I want to read it to you. Plumer says, all sin is utterly opposed to God. As fire and water resist each other, as light and darkness are utterly diverse, so God resists the proud. His nature is wholly opposed to it. He cannot cease to abhor it without ceasing to be God. No creature has an adequate conception of the evil of sin. None but God comprehends it. Because it is so vile, those who love it shall never stand in God's sight. They shall not be owned as his servants. They shall fall before terrible judgments. They shall fall in the great day of trial. The overflowing scourge shall sweep them away. The reason is to be found in the divine purity. So repugnant to God's nature is iniquity that he would not save even his elect except in a way that should fully and forever put away both guilt and stain of sin and bring all conceivable odium on transgression. God would not even spare his son when he stood in the place of sinners, lest he might seem to spare sin. Watch this last line. Could he cease to hate it, he would cease to be worthy of love and confidence. That's the kind of meditation that David made when he was assaulted by enemies on every side. He knew as badly as I hate this injustice which is being wrought, God hates it even more. And I can trust him to do something about it. When you are a victim of injustice, you must remind yourself of the just character of God. It is good for your soul not only to meditate upon God's love and His mercy, but to meditate upon His justice and His wrath. God does not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with Him. The boastful shall not stand before His eyes. He hates all evildoers. He destroys those who speak lies. He abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Could David have possibly expressed God's anger in any stronger language? The point of these verses is that the justice of the cosmos is not your responsibility. It is in far better hands. And this is the grounds for the Lord's promise in Deuteronomy 32-35, which Paul quotes in Romans 12 that I spoke earlier. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, 
Therefore, do not overcome evil with evil, but rather overcome evil with good. He will repay the one who has wronged you. I want you to think of an injustice, a wrong that you have experienced that is as yet unresolved. And I want you to apply this statement to that injustice, to that wrong. God will repay. He will repay the one who has caused you such grief and pain. Even if that person does not receive their just recompense in this life, they will be cast from the Lord's presence on the day of judgment and destroyed, says David. And the recompense that God will hand out is far more just and far more terrible than any judgment that any human court could ever mete out. The justice of the cosmos and the justice of your specific situation is in good hands. Therefore, you need to trust in the justice of God and let go of your bitterness and your unforgiveness and your malice and your wrath. Otherwise, it will eat you alive and it will destroy you. Trust in the just character of your God. Now, the more perceptive among us will recognize an inherent problem. If God hates all evildoers, and if he destroys all who speak lies, then how will I, who have committed such evil, and I, who have spoken such deception in my life, ever stand in the day of judgment? How will I not also, with the rest of the evildoers, be cast from God's holy presence to suffer eternal destruction? Well, David considered that. When those thoughts enter into your mind, and they ought to, you must not only remember the justice of God, you need to recall his mercy. Verse 7, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. I made my case in the very first psalm that to read the Old Testament in general, to read the psalms in particular, we need to understand when, that when they speak of the righteous they're not speaking in the sense of one who is morally perfect or morally sinless, but rather they speak in the evangelical sense of one who is justified, that is declared righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. I wrote down here a whole host of Old Testament texts I'm not going to read. David was certainly not sinless. David was certainly not without moral stain. In fact... The circumstances that he's enduring are the direct result of his sin. And yet he knows that his end will be different from their end. They will be expelled from God's presence and destroyed. He will enter God's house and he will worship. 
Why? What makes the difference between those evildoers and this evildoer? Divine mercy. David confesses that he will enter God's house only through the abundance of God's steadfast love. I'm going to teach a Hebrew word. It's really important. It's the word kesed. And it's translated sometimes as unfailing love, steadfast love, loving kindness. It's a covenant word. It's a word which describes God's particular electing mercies which have been irrevocably granted to his covenant people and will never be withdrawn. It's a strong word. It is the mercy of God, according to the Psalms, which blots out our iniquity, which cleanses our sins, which bestows on us the free gift of righteousness by which we can stand in the judgment of God and enter his house while, where we will bow down in gracious fear that reverences God's name, not paralyzing fear that is terrified of his judgment. Although David is confident that he will one day re-enter God's house, he doesn't know if it's going to happen in this life or in the next life. But he knows he's coming back into God's presence. For the moment, he is exiled from Jerusalem, and he's at a loss as to what to do. All he knows is that Absalom's coming, and he had to get out of Zion. So he prays that the Lord will lead him in the straight way, and he entrusts himself to the merciful providence of God. And so must you. It is possible that your enemies, the ones who have inflicted the injustice upon you, it's possible that they have created and left you in such a mess that you have no idea where to go or how to untangle it or where even to begin. You can't see your way out of this predicament. You should follow David's lead and you should present your present and your future and just lay them on the, the kessid, the covenant mercies of God. Trust him to lead you, to deliver you, to bring you safely home. Because in the very same way that God has sworn in his wrath to punish those who are opposed to him, he has sworn in his mercy to save those who trust in him. His righteousness is at stake in the very same way in either case, and he will not let his righteousness fail. If God does not bring his covenant children, including you, safely home, his righteousness will fall, and he will not allow such a thing to happen. So lay it down. Lay down your burden, lay down your uncertainty, and entrust yourself to the merciful providence of God. Verse 9, David turns his attention now to the enemies of God. David recognizes my enemies are God's enemies when I'm with the Lord. For there is no truth in their mouth their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled 
against you. You'll recognize that as a quote in Romans chapter 3 and verse 13 where Paul is establishing the depravity of all mankind. That's what David's doing in verse 9. He's establishing the wickedness of his enemies. And in verse 10, he pleads for, makes a plea rather for God to judge them for their wickedness. Okay, the picture of verse 9 is comprehensive and it focuses upon deceit. You'll notice he says not only is deceit in their mouth, not only is their throat an open grave, not only do they flatter with their tongue, but their innermost self is destruction. In other words, these enemies are speaking what they really are because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Those who speak wickedness and destruction, they're only drawing from a well that is wicked and destructive. David seems to have in mind the slander and the lies that Absalom and his followers have been speaking as they stole away the hearts of Israel from their king. And David responds to these lies and this slander spoken about him by pleading with God for their downfall and their destruction. Now, verse 10 is the first instance in the Psalms of what are called imprecations. Okay? An imprecatory prayer is a prayer for God's judgment to fall upon the wicked. They're found throughout the Psalms, and they're troubling because of Jesus' command that we love our enemies and pray for them. And we don't get the sense that Jesus meant love our enemies and pray that God would destroy them. But that's what David's doing. So how are we to... How are we to reconcile what David does in verse 10 with what Jesus commands in Matthew 5? Well, there are three possible ways of handling this verse and other verses like it throughout the Psalms. Number one, it could be predictive. All right, it's, it's possible to handle the Hebrew verse, verbs in this passage as being in the future tense rather than what is known as the optative Mood. In other words, these could be predictions of what God will do rather than expressions of hope of what David hopes God will do. In other words, verse 10 would therefore be, you will make them bear their guilt, O God. You will let them fall by their own counsels rather than make them bear their guilt. Let them fall by their own counsels. This is the view of William Plumer, but it's not been followed by many scholars, and I don't think it's the right way to take this. I don't think it's a future prediction only. Second, it could be descriptive. In other words, these, these pleas for judgment could be describing the way David felt at the time without necessarily sanctioning that we should feel the same way. I mean, who among us wouldn't feel this way if we had been betrayed by our closest friends and family and indeed by the whole nation which has turned against us. Who wouldn't pray for justice to be done when we've been the victims of injustice? So this method of understanding these imprecatory psalms says that they describe the way the psalmists actually feel, not the way we ought to feel. Well, this view is not without difficulty, however, because I think it's inconsistent to take Everything else in Psalm 5 is prescriptive, but single out verse 10 as being descriptive just because it doesn't fit with our 
theology. The Psalms themselves do not seem to treat these imprecations as unholy expressions of unholy anger. Which brings us to the third view, which is mine. Which is that these are prescriptive. In other words, we are supposed to pray this way. I think David's desire expressed in verse 10 is a holy desire arising from a thoroughly God-centered worldview. I think that we need to interpret verse 10 in the light of the rest of the Psalms and in light of the rest of Scripture. Clearly, David knows that he's not innocent. He knows that he's as deserving of punishment as the rest of mankind. Just go read Psalms 32, Psalm 51, and you'll see. Verse 10 is not the self-righteous cry of a man who thinks God should judge everyone else but him. Rather, verse 10 is the recognition that David's enemies are God's enemies. And because they have aligned themselves against God's anointed king, they have aligned themselves against God. And because God has established David as king over Israel, their rejection of David's reign is a rejection of God's reign. David has shown himself over and over and over again to be zealous for God's glory and to be zealous for God's people. And God has vested his glory and the good of his people in his anointed king, namely David. And verse 10 does not mean, by the way, that David doesn't also love his enemies and pray for them. That's what last week's sermon was all about. He spoke to his enemies, and he called them to repentance, and he offered them a way home. But here in verse 5, he's praying for justice. It is possible to love your enemies and at the same time to love the justice of God and to cry out for vindication. Justice is a holy desire, just as mercy is a holy desire. Otherwise, on the day of judgment, the saints would not be praising the Lord when he pours forth his wrath upon the earth and upon the wicked on the last day. Yet that is precisely what the Bible says we will do. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. Why are they praising? For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, David expresses his confidence in the ultimate protection of God, even in the midst of his trying circumstances. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a child. David is still in the midst of his crisis. He still needs refuge. He still needs protection. And the word picture that he paints here is beautiful. He says, you spread your protection over him. That phrase is identical to 1 Kings 8-7, which is descriptive of the cherubim who spread their wings over the Ark of the Covenant. 
It's also used in the Psalms where the psalmist says that the Lord hides me in the shadow of his wings. It's the picture of a mother bird who takes her wings and and overshadows the nest. So does the Lord do for his holy ones. God is a good shepherd. And he will protect his sheep from ultimate harm. He will seek them when they go astray. He will defend them from their enemies. He will bring them safely home. He will lose none of them. Do you want that kind of joy and peace in the midst of crisis? Do you want to be able to sing even when all around your soul gives way? Then you need to settle now what you believe about the sovereignty of God. Is he or is he not governing every detail of your life? And is or is not your crisis covered by his good and merciful providence? And what do your emotions say about the level of your trust in his providence? Take refuge in the Lord. He will spread his wings over you. He will protect you from all harm. He will cover you with his favor as with a shield. Your enemies will not prevail over you. You will prevail in God. And I would that God would give us grace to believe that. We would not be so nearly frantic and fragile as we often are in the midst of trials. We would be steadfast and immovable and possessed of a joy that no enemy could ever steal and no circumstance could ever destroy. I want to conclude this morning with a very practical exercise. I want you to think of an injustice that has been committed against you which you are struggling to forgive. If one does not come to mind, don't try to pry one up. Just thank the Lord that you're at peace for the moment. But for many of you, that's not the case. I want you to bring that injustice, that hurt that someone did to you that's unresolved, and I want you to bring it into the the foreground of your mind. And I want us to take the truths of this psalm, and I want us to apply them one by one directly to that situation. All right? You got it? You got it there in the front of your mind? You know that Jesus commands you to love this person, but you can't. You know that Paul commands you not to seek vengeance, but to leave it to the justice of God. But you can't seem to find it within you to let that injustice go. Let's walk through this psalm And let's apply these five steps to your situation. Number one, you must cry to the Lord emotionally, covenantally, and expectantly. Do not seek to handle your grief, your pain, your bitterness, your anger on your own. Pour out your heart to God. Get the poison out. He can take it. Number two, you must remember the justice of God. Remember that God hates the wickedness that has been done to you infinitely more than you do. 
He will repay with a just recompense the one who has wronged you. No debt will be left outstanding when the dust of the final judgment has settled. You can trust him to execute his wrath. Number three, you must also remember the mercy of God. Remember that it is by God's mercy alone that you, who have also done evil, who have also wronged others, it is only by God's mercy that you will enter into God's eternal presence. And his mercy will lead you down a straight path, though all is darkness and life hasn't turned out like you had hoped. Number four, remember that it is okay to pray for the justice of God to be done. God hates lies, he hates violence, he hates wickedness, he hates abuse, he hates divorce, he hates injustice, he loves truth and faithfulness and peace and righteousness. So to pray that the justice of God, that truth would prevail, is to pray in accordance with the holy character of God. Number five, take refuge in the shadow of God's protective wings. Let him overshadow you. Entrust yourself to him who will cover you with favor as with a shield. And I want to leave you with one final thought. For those of you for whom this still doesn't get it, this still doesn't bring you freedom. I want you to remember one thing. The God of Psalm 5, the God who hates evil and deception and injustice, will punish the sinner who has sinned against you. You can be certain of that, and he will do it in one of two ways. He's going to be dead level honest with you. Either the one who sinned against you will repent and themselves seek refuge in Christ, in which case the evil that that person committed against you will have been imputed to Christ, nailed to the cross, and satisfaction offered through Jesus' death with all of the wrath and the horror that the cross entailed, Or that person who sinned against you will bear his own iniquity to the day of justice where he will be condemned and will endure the wrath of God eternally in hell. One of those two realities is sure and certain with regard to that individual who has so wronged you. So let's think about this. If... God deals with that person's sin at the cross, then I would ask you, who are you to say that that judgment is insufficient to pay for the sin committed against you when your sins have been atoned for in the very same way? To continue to hold on to that sin of a person who is a believer in Christ, when that sin has been nailed to the cross, is to devalue the cross of Jesus Christ. Unforgiveness devalues the cross of Christ. Or, 
If that person is not a believer, they bear their sin in the judgment of God and are everlastingly punished in hell, who are you to say that that is an insufficient payment for the sin that was committed against you? That is a fate too terrible to comprehend. Therefore, to continue to hold on to that sin, to nurse that grudge in bitterness and malice, is to devalue the justice and the wrath of God. Either way, unforgiveness is a slander to the character of God. And it's time to let it go. You can trust Him with the wrong that was done to you. You can trust him with the injustice that you've suffered. You can trust him.